millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. As you know, Wittenberg to Westphalia is a member of the Agora Podcast Network. But that is only tangentially related to what we are talking about this month. Yes, this month it is time for me to happily and joyously announce this year's Intelligent Speech Conference. Yes, on April 24th at 10 o'clock in the morning, Eastern Standard Time, or whatever that is, local time for you, we will be having the Intelligent Speech 2021 Conference. This is a conference devoted to bringing independent educational podcasters of the finest quality together in a one-day event that will bring together the podcasters, each other, and you, the listener. And uh, we did it last year in June, and it was an amazing time. We're going to try and make it even bigger and better this year. We've got Liz from Ben Franklin's World. We've got David Crowther, of course, of the History of England, my good friend David. Uh, Very happy to have him. And uh, then we've got Well, we've got about 40 other great content creators. We're basically doing 24 hours of content and four simultaneous streams uh, in a uh, really nice, glossy, new uh, online conference um, environment. And uh, we're hoping for great things this year. And um, I'm just really excited about the the group we're putting together. Um, the the schedule's not full yet, but it will be soon, and we will be able to have that all that information up for you. So you're going to want to go to the website, which is intelligentspeechconference.com, and check out the the schedule as it is now, so the preliminary schedule. And uh, if you are interested in buying a ticket, tickets are going to be thirty dollars. Right now, we're doing an early bird special, so they're only twenty. Plus, plus. As a listener of Wittenberg to Westphalia, you can get 10% off if you use the code W2W. Uh, so you, you're going to go to intelligentspeechconference.com slash shop to get your tickets. Uh, and when you get the tickets at checkout, you'll use the code W2W. You'll get an additional 10% off on top of the early bird special. And uh, I will get a nice kickback, as will all the wonderful uh, uh, speakers at this conference if you're listening to their show and you use their code. So, uh, it is a great, great time. It looks like it's going to be a great time. And, um, you know, I'm just really excited about this. (laughs) Once again. uh, Once again, they roped me in and it's a ton of work, but it's very rewarding. So, 
Uh, it's very rewarding when the conference happens. So um, join me there, and it will be a great time. I'd like to start off by welcoming everybody who found their way here from the History of England podcast. Hello! Now, one of the things that we like to do around here, as you're probably aware, because you've probably listened to the archive, but anyway, every month, we, as is right and proper, give honor and praise to those worthy souls who've put their hard-earned shekels on the line to keep this fly-by-night operation going. As a result of my spot on the History of England podcast, we have not only gotten an influx of new listeners, we've also gotten a large number of donors and patrons. Uh, to help keep this intro from being overly long, uh, I'm going to split that up between this episode and the next episode. Um, so I hope that's okay. I hope those of you uh, who donated, who will be next time, don't feel too bad about that. That said, the first person up is Finn, who uh, donated to the show and shall thus be known from henceforward as Finn, the grand interlocutor of the royal chat room. Up next, we have patron Tim, which rhymes with Finn, and I did not do that on purpose. However, Tim shall be known from this day until many future days as Sir Tim, Knight of the Well-Lit End Table and Chief Containment Officer of the Alchemist's Guild. Thank you, Sir Tim, Knight of the Well-Lit End Table and Chief Containment Officer of the Alchemist's Guild. Lastly, we have Monica, who, due to her services to the realm, has been given the honorable position of Abbas Monica, Keeper of the Royal Relics and Warden of the Bones. Thank you to... Finn, Tim, and Monica. As I said, the rest of the donors will be thanked next time around, uh, and for now, let's get right into it. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kedishanu b'mitzvotav, v'tzivanu, v'hadlik ner shel Shabbat. Everyone's right, and no one is sorry. That's the start and the end of the story. From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning. Many of you may remember episode 60 of this series, entitled Living the Life a Catholic. In that episode, I interviewed my colleague Thomas Daly of the American Biography podcast about his experience as a modern Catholic lapsed. As I said at the time, my intention is to do more of these kinds of episodes, and for a very specific pedagogical reason. This show is not a comparative religion show, but the fact is that the central conflict of this show will be over religion, thus wars of religion. Given that we all have different religious backgrounds, I think it will be useful to discuss how various people of different religions practice their faith today, which will give us something of a baseline for discussions of how their religions compare to each other and how they worked in the past. In the wake of that last episode I did with Tom, one thing that somewhat hilariously emerged was that my own co-religionists, which is to say members of the Jewish community, had a few very polite corrections as to how I characterized our shared faith. I decided that if I'm going to be subjecting Catholics and Protestants to this treatment, I should probably invite a few of my own people on as well, if only to show solidarity with any Catholics out there who are subjected to my interview with Tom. To be clear, I do intend to interview another Catholic at some point, and I think I may be able to get a Presbyterian at some point, too. If there's any Lutherans out there, hit me up. 
But for today, we are joined by Ira, who has graciously agreed to be my interlocutor for today as we discuss Judaism. Ira, welcome. Hello. Tell us something about yourself. Uh, so I am a uh, plant genetics researcher, but uh, my real passion is history. Uh, the only reason that I didn't get a degree in history is that my Jewish parents told me that I couldn't get a job, and so I wasn't allowed and they wouldn't pay for it. <laughs> So uh, instead, I, I worked in plant biology and I uh, got my degree there. But to satisfy the itch of wanting to learn history, I listened to an absolutely absurd number of history podcasts. But I do also try to work history into my regular work stuff. So for example, about a year ago, I published a paper that used genetics, archaeology, and uh, studying ancient texts to determine how cowpea, which we usually call black-eyed pea in the United States, uh, how it spread from its origins in sub-Saharan Africa about 3,500 years ago to where it is today. And of course, you're in very good company here. We are all history podcast weirdos. <laughs> Before we get deep into it, I just want to reiterate to my audience that neither of us are theological scholars. Obviously, with that intro, we know that your background is not my background, uh, and we're not claiming to be. The point of our discussion is just to talk about how one person but two people relate to Judaism and discuss how some of the basic uh, liturgical practices in such a way that uh, we can help some of our listeners build up a picture of what the life state of being Jewish sort of feels like given the understanding that there are millions of Jewish individuals around the world and that they live their Jewishness differently based on their own circumstances. And I just say that because last time I did get a number of emails from people saying that Tom hardly captures the entirety of the Catholic experience and is like, yes, understood. <laughs> that was sort of, that was said up front, but let's be explicit this time. So with that said, how would you describe your religious affiliation to a non-Jew and possibly to a fellow Jew? So uh, to, to a non-Jew, I would probably just say that I'm a practicing Jew, meaning that, that I live my life according to Jewish law, but I, you know, it's not... I want to emphasize that that Jewish law is it's a system of living. So it you know it has laws about all sorts of different things. It's not just about what kind of food can you eat. No pork. It's it's a whole it's a whole philosophy and worldview instead. Now, how I would describe myself in comparison to other Jews is uh, I consider myself to be conservative or masorti. Masorti is usually what it's called in Israel, and conservative is what it's called in the United States. So there's a general breakdown of how uh, Jewish affiliations work in the United States, and it's a little bit different from how Christian groups operate. So in general, what you can imagine Jewish groups as operating on a sliding scale in terms of uh, observance, whereas Christian groups will have very different concepts, you know, like is predestination a thing or not and stuff like that. Um, so if we were to try and go from, from a least to most observant, we'd start with secular Jews. So there'd be people who might just consider themselves to be ethnically Jewish, celebrate Hanukkah, but aren't really involved in the religious aspect of it. And might also call themselves cultural Jews, that sort of thing. Next one would be uh, reformed Jews. And then there's a conservative Masorti. And then more religious observant than I am uh, would be modern Orthodox and then ultra-Orthodox. What's really important to, I guess, my identity as a conservative Masorti is that uh, you'll notice that I listed five different groups and I put myself right in the middle. 
being in the middle is an important part of that. It's it's kind of this idea that, you know, not too much this way, not too much the other way. Now, of course, people in other situations are going to say, well, you know, I have the reasonable point of view and everybody else is crazy. So it's not, you know, of course, it's, it's a little more complex than that. Um, what I'm trying to say, you know, I'm trying to operate in a way that I can be both observing Jewish law, living a Jewish life, but also be fully engaged in the modern world. Right. My bias as an interlocutor here is that I'm, you know, coming from a reform background. Uh, and I, I think actually that the characterization of reform as less observant is something that um, it, it's interesting that when, so reform sort of came out of the uh, post-enlightenment period when Jews were not being pogromed quite so much anymore. <laughs> and um, there was sort of this, amongst the theologians, there was this move how do we fit in with the modern world when we're not being forcibly isolated in ghettos and stuff like that? And, you know, it being the Enlightenment, there was this real intensive seeking for what are the laws that are rational, the rational laws. And of course, after much thinking, it was exactly what all their neighbors were doing. <laughs> A lot of that, that sort of classical era of reform ended up being, and it particularly started in North Germany, England, and the United States. And so, you know, those are Protestant areas. And so a lot of what reform early reform practice ended up looking like was Protestantism without crucifixes. <laughs> and there were congregations that didn't even have Hebrew in the services and things like that. And I, I would just say that modern reform since the 60s has walked that a lot back. Not that everyone does all the stuff, but uh, there's more of an emphasis increasingly on providing the option if people want. So there's a there's more of an emphasis on um, choices that are right for individuals as part of a community. Um, and I think that that's the community thing is going to be something that's a through line for both of our experiences, actually. Um, I wanna, uh, there's something that, that might be, do you know about the history of the conservative movement, how it was created? There was an event. Um, my very brief understanding, this is all obviously so kind of really an interesting story and someone could definitely do a podcast on just this. But my, my limited understanding is that it was sort of a um, Russian Jews got to the US and found a bunch of German Jews who were reform and kind of went, what's up with these people who are <laughs> like, they go to services and they're like, we walked into the wrong building. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and ended up sort of, again, like you said, trying to find a middle way between uh, what the very German-influenced Jews in, the, in New York had been doing versus the practices from back home. Well, so actually, that so so that is an important point. Uh, there's there's this is an important part of uh, Judaism in America is the relationship between the Jews who had migrated earlier, usually German Jews. Um, and those who came later. So uh, I don't know about your background, but my family's from, from Eastern Europe. They were dirt poor peasants who showed up right. around for the First World War. And, uh, you know, they were, they were peasants and they were looked down upon. Um, but that's also where uh, a lot of the modern educational system comes from in the United States. It was created by German Jews who were just embarrassed uh, about their co-religionists. Uh, but so going with the, I had mentioned that there's a specific event where conservative Judaism comes from. It's actually something called the Trefa dinner, where there had, you know, a reform community, had the, they had a, they were having a, a big community dinner and then they served shrimp. 
<laughs> a bunch of people said this is too much for us and they got yeah. up and walked out and they mm-hmm. made the and those people eventually were the ones who uh founded the modern conservative movement that's hilarious, first of all. And that totally characterizes the initial formation of the sects, even if I grew up kosher, actually. You know, since then, reform, like I said, has sort of walked it back. But one thing to just say for our international listeners, reform is basically the same as liberal Judaism in Anglo- uh, other Anglophone countries. So in the UK and the Commonwealth countries, uh, it's called quote unquote liberal Judaism different names for the same thing, just uh, so we're all speaking the same language, even though we're all English speakers here. With all that said about uh, identity and some look at the different sects of Judaism and that confusing mess to outsiders, I'm going to ask you to do an impossible task, which sort of this entire interview is, but um, I'm going to ask some questions to try and help people understand what a normal Jew looks like. (laughs) or what being a normal Jew looks like. And of course, this is an impossible task because there's Yemeni Jews, there's, uh, you know, American Jews of Russian descent, there's American Jews of German descent and anything. So getting back to establishing uh, a normative case with the recognition that it's impossible. So for you, what are the elements of a normal Jewish day? What parts of your day are shaped by being Jewish? Is there any specific liturgical aspects of a given day? Okay, so uh, I guess the the important thing to say here is that because being Jewish has a whole code of laws that affects all aspects of life, everything you do in a day is Jewish. Just by being Jewish, everything you do is Jewish. Uh, It really can't be separated out. Um, So this is like a common thing that might be confusing to, to, to some listeners, especially in America, is that you can have that we have in in secular in the secular world there's this idea of separation of church and state right that there's religion is in this box over here and everything else is in this box over there of course that's not how people live their lives so everybody's faith uh, for those who have faith impacts their say for example their political beliefs how they who they choose to associate with who they choose to shun which coffee shop they go to, all sorts of stuff like that, whether or not they buy cakes at certain places. And so Judaism doesn't, Jewish law, which is called, uh, I should define this. So Jewish law has has special words called halakha. It's a fully encompassing set of laws in the same way that the American legal code is a fully encompassing set of laws for all sorts of different situations. And it's quite similar to, to to our system actually today, uh, if you imagine that common, you imagine the analogy being common law, English common law, where there are laws based on precedent and custom that are constantly being reinterpreted by judges as new situations arise. Same thing in halakha. Now, you should go back and find where this comes from. So in Jewish law, all law originates in, quote unquote, the law which uh, is another name for the, uh, for the Torah. So Torah means uh, the, the book or the scroll, but it also means the law. Um, and so the, the Bible contains all of these laws, specifically in the five books of Moses, it contains uh, 613 laws as they're traditionally counted. Uh, and these were the basis of laws, uh, the base of the law and custom that the people lived by. Now, when there was the Babylonian exile, uh, about, I guess, uh, 
2,500 years ago, a lot of the laws couldn't be followed. And there was a question, what do you do? Because a lot of the laws are specifically, they have to happen in the land of Israel. They also involve things like sacrifices at the temple. Well, you can't do that if you don't have a temple. So what, what does being Jewish mean? So what developed out of this is beginning in Babylon and over the next several centuries was the institution of rabbis who are in, in the Jewish community. It has changed over time, but the best way to understand rabbis would be like a combination of a religious scholar, judge, possibly uh, in smaller community, you know, like a mayor. Um, they're a town elder, but it's there's an element both of it has to be earned. Uh, through rigorous study, but it also usually passes threat down through families. Like, you know, just like the, the son of a rabbi will often go and study and, and become a rabbi. And the rabbis derive their authority through a ritual called smicha, which is a placing on of the hands on the head and it, it confers the authority. Now this, Catholics might be familiar with this, and this is also how uh, priests are considered to have their authority. It's passed down through the uh, church hierarchy going back to Jesus, right? Yeah. So, so there's, there, um, so this is one of the ways that the rabbis have their authority. This is passed down uh, by tradition originally from Moses. And this is derived from a story where Moses places hands on Joshua uh, before he dies and to pass the authority of the leadership of the people. And now rabbis aren't, that's not their only source of authority. They also derive authority in that they're just knowledgeable. Like if you have a question about what you need to do in a certain situation, well, they're the ones who have studied and they can answer your question. And also they're usually uh, what you might consider, what might be called the community leaders. Um, so because there are, people go to them for advice and stuff, uh, they're looked up to. And, and so their weight carries, you know, their word carries a much more weight than, you know, some Joe Schmo. Um, so now what they do is they interpret laws just like say common law judges would do um, to new situations. So there's always something that comes up, you know, there's always new situations that come up that weren't covered, you know, like the, the, the Torah is a, it's a document that appeared in the, in the iron age, right? So all of the laws that apply to life in the iron, you know, in iron age farming communities, are not necessarily directly applicable. Like it doesn't tell you anything about what happens if I drop my iPhone, you know, yeah. <laughs> like that's just not relevant, you know, like that's yeah, not something yeah. that was covered. And so there's been this constant reinterpretation as new situations arise. Now, what's really important about this is that those reinterpretations are, you know, the, those, the ruling. So the, the, the rabbis will, will look at the evidence, they'll weigh it, they'll look for, you know, look for a resource and then, and then they'll make a ruling. I know that those rulings, you can have two different rabbis who make completely opposite rulings. But the important thing here is that those are both entirely valid, which is very confusing to people outside. But what those rulings often become is what may be called a customer tradition. And, custom, and, and tradition is very important. We might think about it in our modern context as tradition is we have cranberry sauce on Thanksgiving, right? That's, but if you don't have it, that's not a big deal. You know, right, right. somebody's emotionally attached to it, but that's very different from how tradition operates in this context. Tradition, right, right. It, you know, could be something like in this community, men also light candles because somebody said that. In another community, that's not, that's not how it's done. Both of those are entirely valid. And it's another example yeah. that's probably my favorite is uh, about whether or not Turkey is kosher. Um, <laughs> the, the laws of Kashrut, um, we might want to go into where these come from 
Uh, oh, yeah. Later, but the uh, the laws of kashrut are for fish. It's uh, there. There's specific rules about if it has these traits, yeah, it's good. If it doesn't have these traits, it's not good. For uh, animals, it's also the same thing. Birds are weird in that there's just an actual list of birds that are acceptable, and then there's a list right, of birds right. that are not acceptable. Now, so, of course, no one bothered to check whether or not birds from the New World were acceptable or not, so it's not in the list. And so there are some interpretations as to can we change, you know, can we derive rules from this list? We have a list. Are there patterns in it that we can use to determine whether or not something that doesn't appear on either list is acceptable? Or is just the list is the list and that's it? So in terms of turkey, right? Turkey, big deal in America. You go to Renaissance fairs, everyone's eating turkey legs. Uh, some, you know, most Jews will consider turkey to be kosher. Usually it's considered, you know, like a nut. Uh, birds that are not birds of prey are generally considered to be kosher by most right. people. But there are rabbis who have ruled that turkey is not kosher. Well, so that means is, well, people who, who uh, in those communities won't eat turkey. And that's an entirely valid thing to do. And it's entirely valid for other people to eat turkey. So this whole situation plus 5,000 years sort of explains Judaism. <laughs> 5,000 years of rabbis arguing about stuff and no one ever being proven wrong. Yes, Because yes. <laughs> there's no wrong. I mean, there's yeah, wrong, there's... but like, if you can win over your community, then you're right. <laughs> yeah, and once, and, and of course, the, you know, customs and tradition, you know, those rulings can spread and there, there is kind of, you know, an element yeah. of popularity. If other communities say, oh, well, that's actually a good thing. We should follow that too. You yeah. can get, yeah. uh, you can get a widespread thing, you know, so there are some traditions that originated in one city or one shtetl somewhere in Eastern Europe and now all Jews everywhere do them. And, you know, they'll follow, or we will follow leaders of particular influence or persuasive ability or centers of particular influential learning that can sometimes become institutions for a little while until, you know, the next program comes along and wipes them out. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so there's an element of consensus, but yes. it's, it's not... So, so there's, a, there's definite feedback. There isn't like a organized structure uh, that determines, that says, this is what belief is, this is what practice is, and this is what you do. There's a back and forth between the community and the, and the leadership of the community. And this isn't a formal process, but it's kind of just how things are done. So now that I've uh, totally ignored your question, the original question, <laughs> we'll, we'll try to move back to, uh, to uh, how does this affect uh, daily life? So. Probably the, our most, the most important thing would be uh, the regular prayer services. So I'll talk about two uh, types of prayer services. Um, there's the weekday prayer services and the Shabbat. Shabbat is uh, the Sabbath, and so it's a, it's a the day of rest. It's a special day and the different rules for it. On a regular day, there are three three sets of prayers. There's in the morning, and there's the broadly morning, afternoon, evening. There is a range of times in which you can do them. It's, you know, before this, but not after this and stuff like that. Uh, so these three are, so the morning one is called Shachri, the afternoon one is Mincha, and the evening one is Mariv. Now, the way this usually happens uh, in, uh, in modern times is, uh, so early in the morning, usually before people go to work, uh, they'll, they'll, uh, they'll pray Shachri, um, which is just the morning prayer. It's usually, you know, about half an hour long. And then in the evening, since uh, the breakdown between Mincha and Mariv is sunset, what usually happens is 
people do both sets of prayers at sunset. So you start you start mincha just before sunset, and then it's the sunsets, and then you do mariv. So you don't have you know so so that you're only really attending two prayers a day, but uh, you can do mincha basically any time after noon. <laughs> I love that. That's so. <laughs> and it's all it's it's such a classic. I have to say, so, you know, this the stuff about interpretation of the law was always the stuff that I enjoyed most about about growing up Jewish uh, and just like sitting down with a bunch of people and arguing about stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah, you can argue about all sorts of stuff. And what's yeah. really fun about uh, Jewish law is you can actually just take it and apply it to other things. One of my favorite arguments is uh, in fantasy books, there are all these different systems of magic. Well, are yeah. any of the, which of which, if any of those systems are allowable on Shabbat? <laughs> well, not pyromancy. <laughs> well, it depends on what you're doing with it. Well, in, my favorite one is, you know, I, I've had arguments about Harry Potter magic. I hold that if you were to going to use magic for something that you wouldn't use electricity for, then it's not acceptable. But if you were to use it for something that you wouldn't have used electricity for, then it's acceptable. You can consider it as a form of energy. Other people would say <laughs> that magic is not covered by uh, by the things that are forbidden on on Shabbat. So you could use it any you could use it for anything you wanted. So basically, if you're a wizard, you don't need a Shabboskoy. <laughs> well, that's that's what they would say. I would say differently. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> we may explain what that means to our audience at some point, but for now. Um... Okay, so so going with the with the, yeah, the yeah. prayers. Um, so there, are, so most of the prayers, uh, the the built these uh, services have built up over time. Uh, the names of the services are based off of sacrifices that were made in the temple, and so these are so prayer services are essentially replacements for the regular sacrifices. Right. And so they have the same names uh, as those sacrifices. You can find them there in the book of Leviticus. The prayer service itself, they consist of all sorts of uh, devotionals, you know, a lot of religious poetry that's been written over centuries and centuries and centuries. Now, most of these are not strictly required. In order to fulfill the minimum requirement for having done the service, there are two main prayers, and these are the Shema and the Amidah. So the Shema is, you might call it the Jewish Pledge of Allegiance. It's it's in very short, in one sentence, what is Judaism? So it's in Hebrew, if you translate it, it's, uh, it, mean, it says, uh, listen, Israel, uh, God is our Lord, God is one. So this is uh, the the important central dogma in Judaism. And this is this is the most important thing. Ideally, this should be the first thing that you say, and this should be what you say in the morning and in the evening. And additionally, even it should be the last words that you say before you die. So Jews have martyr stories, just like uh, Christians do. Uh, and so oftentimes part of this involves the refusing to renounce Judaism and then being killed for it, usually at the hands of Christians. Certainly in our community. I'm sure yes, Yemeni uh, Jews have different stories. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, and, and so famously, this is, you know, they might be shouting it as they're stabbed or, or, or something like that. The other prayers, the, the Amidah, is also called the Shemona Esra, literally just means 18, the 18. And it consists of 18 blessings that are said in every service. And if uh, anyone is curious why 18 is important for Jews, this is uh, one of the reasons. 
The other reason being that if you were to add up the number values of the letters in the word uh, life, which is chai, uh, it's, right. it's also 18. So just to explain that a little bit, um, traditionally the, it's sort of like Roman numerals where each letter carries a numerical significance. And so chai ends up being 18. And so at your bar mitzvah, you get lots of checks in denominations of 18. Yeah, so it's also <laughs> common if you're donating to like a Jewish charity, yes. you know, when they'll have the suggested amounts, it'll be multiples of 18 usually. Right. And the, uh, the elderly relative that gave you 18 cents in an envelope was the least favorite relative. <laughs> yes. <I> <laughs> so, um, so, so I guess that, that covers, uh, the, the prayer service. The other important thing that, you know, that, that permeates daily life would be food. Um, and right. so this would be, uh, these are the laws of kashri and this would be Kosher means pure uh, or purity. And so it's brought, you know, in a broad sense, and again, it can apply to everything. Um, you might have heard the expression, uh, you know, that's not kosher, or, you know, that's kosher as, you know, just meaning that it's all okay. But in this context, it refers specifically to the law, to the dietary laws. And so right, right. the most famous ones that, that uh, non Jews might know would be the no milk and no meat. Uh, and uh, no eating of unclean animals, like no pork. Yeah. Um, and so just like all the other ones, uh, these derive from halakha. So there are actually only a few laws in the Torah from which this whole system uh, has been developed over the last several thousand years. So I think that covers your average Tuesday pretty well. So let's zoom out a little bit. What does a normal week look like? You mentioned that there's normal day services and then there's the Shabbat services. Obviously, I included this question to get at the Shabbat services. Yes. And um, for our listeners, an interesting thing for me talking to Tom was this difference in emphasis where in Catholicism, you could just say masses like three times a day and it's all equally significant um, versus, you know, we don't, we're not getting brownie points for going to services. We'll discuss later, but it's, um, so let's talk about Shabbat. Okay. <laughs> I'll <Yeah>. shut up. <laughs> So, so probably the, the an important thing here is that under Jewish law, uh, days don't start and end at midnight. They intend uh, days uh, start and end at sundown. So each day starts at sundown the evening before. So there's a concept of this called Erev, uh, which just means evening. So Erev Shabbat would be Friday evening, um, Shabbat being the Sabbath. And in general, you know, what the, what the week looks like, so uh, this when we're talking about that things start in the evening, what we notice is that as the time changes over the course of the year, things will start and, you know, the days will, they don't all end at the exact same time on the count, on, on the clock. Uh, so right now we're in the middle, it's January. Um, sunset where I am is like five o'clock right now. And whereas in the summer, it'll be, you know, like 8.30. Right. Um, and so that, that will really affect when, when you do things. So... The way Shabbat works is uh, there, there are a couple of requirements for it. One is the specific requirement, lota seko malacha, don't do all malacha, which is uh, a term that is generally translated as work, but it doesn't exactly mean that. It kind of really means don't do this list of things. As a le yeah. very legalistic tradition, you have to refer to the appendix and yes. say <laughs> the list of definitions. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, probably, you know, like the be, you know, not turning on lights, not uh, not driving a car, 
Um, that's that's some of the stuff that's been derived from the original things. But uh, you know, it's, in those, it's it's uh, things that were generally considered to have been part of building the Mishkan, which is the tabernacle in the desert. Uh, and there's a list of there's essentially a list of verbs that are in there, and don't do those verbs. <laughs> um, so that includes things like gardening, dyeing wool, uh, among other things. Um, so in terms of the, the service itself, in terms of uh, the observance itself, there's a Friday, there's a special Friday evening service that's to, to welcome in the Sabbath. And then there's also a, a meal uh, in the evening. An important part of Shabbat is that there are three meals that take place over the course from Friday evening through Saturday evening. So what constitutes a meal can be different in different communities. Um, so in, in uh, my practice, it means eating bread. Other people, it might be having having wine and saying the blessing over wine. So, so that can be different. The specific thing is it's the three, it's the three meals. So there's the Friday evening meal, um, which is usually done after the you light candles. Um, there's a number of blessings. There's, there's blessing usually the children, the, you know, blessing the wife. Um, in my family, we also bless the husband as well, but that's that's a, a more modern thing. There, there isn't a traditional one that people have been doing for you know five thousand years. And then uh, in the morning, uh, there are services. These are these services usually start eight eight thirty uh, in the morning, and uh, they'll go until about noon. Um, and the centerpiece of this service is uh, the reading from the reading from the Torah. The Torah is divided into uh, into 52 sections, uh, sometimes uh, 56 when we have leap months, uh, which is a whole extra can of worms uh, because it's not nice and orderly like uh, like in the, the Gregorian calendar. Uh, but so it's a reading, and so it's a cycle reading through the entire Torah over the course of a year. Um, and so that's the centerpiece, and it's usually the story or, you know, the content of that is often what's, you know, uh, part of the, the sermon following following the reading discussion, you know, because the point isn't just, the, the point in Judaism is not just to be, here are the laws, now do them, right. but it's, it's, a, it's an engagement with them. Um, you're supposed to you're you're supposed to question things. You're supposed to say, okay, but why? And should I do things differently? You know, and and not uh, not to just do this, don't do that, you know, and and don't think about it. Right. Uh, so then, following that, there's usually a, a lunch. So uh, lunch on Saturday is a big deal. Usually, people, you know, uh, I had mentioned this uh, on Friday evening uh, and Saturday lunch. It's usually. Uh, often people will go over to other people's houses. It's a it's a very community sort of thing. And then the last meal, which is uh, around the time in the evening, Mincha and Mariv, the evening prayers. That is just for. Uh, that's usually like a like a light snack because you've already eaten a ton of food over the last 24 <laughs> hours. Yeah. This is going to sound like a strange question, and this is one of the big differences with the Reform community, and it's a very strange thing that's happened. So the Friday service, does that tend to happen at the synagogue or at people's houses, usually? That'll happen at the synagogue. Okay. Uh, and then the Saturday service, people go back to the synagogue yeah. again, generally. So the interesting thing in most Reformed congregations that I've been in, what's happened is that the Friday service became the service. And the Saturday service is when people get bar and bat mitzvahed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and 
Uh, and, uh, having, having been to a few of those, uh, I, I find it very weird. I had been in uh, one bat mitzvah and they also, uh, they decided they ended Shabbat after the service so that they could have the DJ play. It was very uncomfortable. <laughs> um, it was like, you can't just do that. You can't just decide the day is over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's, yeah, there's a ton of different... Usually the bar and bat mitzvah goes directly from the service to the the DJ. However, each congregation justifies that as is a congregation by congregation thing or a family by family thing. But I've uh, when we, we when we joined our current congregation, Friday night really wasn't working for us to be the day that we went. So we tried to go Saturday and you know get crashed some kids bar and bat mitzvah, <laughs> and everyone was super welcoming and nice and was so glad to see us and. I was like, oh, we uh, we got to go. <laughs> That's an interesting thing. Theoretically, anyone in the congregation can just go to the bar and bat mitzvah and sit through the service. It's this, you know, you're, you're totally allowed to go. Uh, it's just everyone else in that room is going to be one of the family members. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and I often, um, this is this is a problem uh, being an observant Jew, is that most activities that happen, you know, like youth groups and other stuff, they're always on Saturdays. Soccer games, they're always Saturdays, which is you know, kind of a problem for anybody who wants to be involved in people outside the community. And I, I imagine that had, that plays some role in, in the shifting of services and the reform. Yeah, there, there's been a bunch of shifting around and that's probably, you're, you're right, that's a, probably a big part of it. One of the things, our Hebrew school growing up, the younger kids did Hebrew school on Saturdays, but then the older skill, older kids moved to Sunday and Wednesday. Why Sunday and Wednesday? Because it wasn't Saturday. <laughs> so getting back to our questions. So after my conversation with Tom, um, I had spent about a little bit of time trying to needle at this in terms of the Catholic liturgy. You know, what what is the important part? And one of my listeners wrote in and told this great story about how he had an uncle or yeah, an uncle or something who was a uh, a Catholic priest and was in the Airborne <laughs> and uh, had this like collapsible table and he could do masses before everyone jumped out of airplanes or whatever it was. So, you know, and he said that they could do it within like 15 minutes. So I think we've covered this already, but in uh, in Jewish practice, or at least for you, um, if if we were about to, uh, if our all Jewish paratrooper unit was about to go out over Normandy, <laughs> what would the rabbi need to say to us before, uh, or what would we need to say with the rabbi before we uh, did the very un-Jewish thing of trusting our lives to a parachute and jumping out of a perfectly good airplane? <laughs> so. Um... In, in that situation, you know, like I, I, I don't know. That would be a that would be a question for a rabbi, uh, you know. So, uh, so, so I'm I'm not going to attempt to to answer the the specifics on that. But uh, I suppose that the important thing here is we talk about that this is an example of like an extreme circumstance and and what you're supposed to do in an extreme circumstance. So an important part of Judaism, at least in, in my understanding of it and, and how I live it, is that the goal isn't the, it isn't, you know, do all the things on the checklist. The checklist is, is an important thing and it's, it's part of how you are part of the community. You know, on, on Saturday, we all do this, on, you know, and, and 
we all eat this kind of food, et cetera, right? That's an important part of creating the, you know, the community cohesion. Um, but when you're in extremities, uh, a lot of that stuff can, can go out go out the window, like you are jumping out of an airplane. <laughs> um, but uh, so the point being that when you can't do something, it's not something that, you know, you should, you should, uh, you know, beat yourself up over. An important part of Judaism is that, that God is merciful. God is infinitely merciful. And we're human beings. We make mistakes. We do things wrong. And there's, there, there's no Jewish hell. There's no, you know, there's no ledger up in the sky where all of your merits and demerits are, are knocked off. And then, you know, at the end of your life, uh, if you had enough if you had enough, you go to heaven, and if you don't have, if, you know, it always the other way, you go to hell. There, there's no Jewish hell. There's so when you do a requirement, you know, you should feel good as, as you know, like you've accomplished something that uh, that God and your community consider to be important. But if you don't do it, you know, what you do is you say, okay, well, I didn't do it this time. I recognize my mistake, and when it happens, when the situation comes up again, I'll do the right thing. Um, so there, there, there's no, there, there's nothing like, you know, say Hail Mary five times before, uh, after doing something or, you know, something like that. So we've talked about days, we've talked about weeks, let's talk about months and years. Uh, I think we can sort of mush those two together and say that what are the things that people should know about the yearly, the year long ritual cycle and if you want to finish it up what's your favorite holiday okay uh so the the important thing here is that uh the jewish calendar is different from the gregorian calendar uh so it is it's a lunar calendar and so the months begin and end at the new moon uh instead of at an arbitrary day that works out for nice mathematical reasons for the numbers of times <laughs> you go around the sun and uh, so this doesn't quite match up with the seasons. Um, so if anybody's familiar with uh, how uh, Muslim holidays will move around the calendar, uh, this is because they don't use uh, leap months. They're sometimes called intercalary months. Uh, so in Judaism, every two or three years, there's an extra month added in order to you know, make sure that the holidays stay at the right time of the year uh, because the holidays are generally based on, an, you know, they're partially based on an agricultural system. Uh, so you have to make sure the harvest festival falls during the harvest. It doesn't make any sense for the harvest festival to fall during planting time. Right. And so these, and it's not super regular, it, you know, every two or three years. So it happens seven times every 19 years. But on the other hand, it's been calculated out. So, you know, I can tell you what days I'm gonna need off for holidays for the next 6,000 years. <laughs> That's actually so. This is a total aside, um, but you mentioned earlier how uh, how the days start at sundown. So I'm the Jew in the office. So you know, no one says it like that. But every every year uh, at the beginning of the financial year, when they're setting out the calendars for when committee meetings are going to be, they come to me with a calendar and be like, "Can you tell us when the Jewish holidays are?" <laughs> And I'm like, and they're like, we, I think we got it right this time. And it's always like, yeah, but that's, that's era of Passover. You know, you got to move that. You got to move that one. And that one's, you know, some people will give you a problem for that one. And some people won't. And <laughs> anyway. Yeah, Erev is very confusing for, for non-Jews, I've noticed. Yeah. 
I mean, having a holiday that lasts one day that's split over two days in the Western calendars, I, I can see where they're coming from. Anyway. Oh, yeah. So we were saying about uh, my favorite holiday. Um, so right. Yeah. So uh, maybe we should just, just give a rundown of the uh, of the major holidays. Sure. Um, so the major holidays that uh, non-Jews might be familiar with, uh, especially in America, um, might be uh, Rosh Hashanah, which is the New Year, uh, and Yom Kippur, uh, which is the Day of Atonement. And those fall uh, usually in, in mid-September, October, around there. And then following that, we have um, the, the other three really important holidays that occur over the course of the year are um, they're called the Shlosh HaRegalim, which is the, the three walking holidays, uh, because they were the holidays that in the times of the temple, everyone would go to Jerusalem to, to have a, a special service. And so these, uh, they're very, they're agriculturally based. So they're both agriculturally based and tied to specific points in, uh, in the, in, um, I guess, the, the cycle of the Jewish consciousness, important events in yeah, Jewish yeah. history. Uh, let's start with the the one in the spring. Uh, so Passover, which is in the spring, and this is it's an early you know it's a spring festival, so about planting time. And it's also uh, oh I should mention that uh, these festivals are for a agricultural calendar that's operating in Israel, which is a right. different environment than than the United States. So the growing season is a different time. Uh, right. It's right. a Mediterranean climate, which means that it's uh, you'll have like a a lot of rain in the winter, and then the growing season is at it is is shifted around. The the, the spring festival is uh, the Passover, and that's also tied with uh, leaving from e with the uh, Exodus from Egypt. And uh, probably the the most important part of this that people might know is no eating leavened bread and having matzahs instead. Then seven weeks after that is a holiday called Shavuot, which just means sevens because it's seven <laughs> weeks later. And uh, this is uh, traditionally considered to be the time of uh, receiving Torah from on Mount Sinai. This is when Moses comes down with the, uh, this is when, when Moses brings down the Torah uh, to the Jews. And then uh, in the fall, so this actually falls after Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, is uh, the festival of Sukkot. This is a harvest festival. And uh, the, the big thing here is there's the, uh, the festival of booths, uh, so, uh, so Jews will build temporary huts, essentially, in, in their backyard, on their driveway, something like that. The, the point being that it's temporary and, uh, and eat inside of those. So, and as to which one's my favorite, uh, Sukkot is my favorite. I just like fall vegetables. And uh, it's also great because we get to do a rain dance. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Do you know about the rain gonna, dance? I don't know about the rain dance. <laughs> okay, so uh, there's a. Okay, so are you familiar with the Etrog and Lulav? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So that's. Oh, it's that. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So so it's the Haka foot where you walk around the. Well, you're, where you walk around seven times. Yep. Well, while okay. shaking it. Yep. That's the rain dance. Okay, so we should explain that now to uh, to the Goyim. So uh, the, the Lulav and the Etrog. I forget which one's which, but there's a, a citrus fruit that's inedible. And oh, a, I, I can explain it. Yeah, yeah, you go for <laughs> okay. it. Go for it. <laughs> so there are, four, there are four species. It's called the Arba Minim, and they are uh, four species that are uh, held together. And they have all sorts of significance, and there's lots of interpretations, but I won't bother getting into that because we could be here all day just talking yeah. about that. <laughs> um, 
but so what it is is uh, it's a palm frond. So it's a tight palm frond. So before it unfurls, there's a willow branches, myrtle branches, and a citron. And specifically, the citron still has to have the little nub on the end that's left over from the flower in order to be kosher. I don't know why. Uh, but it's important, and uh, so these these uh, all of these are held together during the uh, during during the rain dance that I mentioned. Um, and there's a there there's there's you shake them in different directions. Uh, you walk around the synagogue uh, seven times, and uh, it's essentially it's a request for for rain. And after this point, you start you add prayers for rain to the regular service. So between Sukkot and Passover, you'll you'll have these ex- these prayers for rain part of the service. You know, I didn't realize that was a rain dance, but that's uh, that's it makes it much awesome. better, doesn't it? It does, it does, it really does. <laughs> I, I I always thought it was a, a wonderfully romantic kind of. Uh, it's just nice to like be outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of a problem, and you know, uh, in the north, in the, the yeah. northeast of America, it's kind of cold. A little bit. A little oh, bit. Uh, something that that uh, that I remembered that might be relevant here is um, a lot of the Chinese or other Eastern East Asian holidays will fall at similar times to Jewish holidays. Oh. So the the Mooncake Festival is right. is like at the same time as Sukkot. They're both harvest festivals. Oh. They're both lunar calendars. I, I never made that connection. That, that, but that makes total sense. That's great. My favorite holiday is uh, is Passover because I like getting together with family, eating lots of food, and arguing. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Well, that's always fun. Yes. <laughs> uh, I'm a huge fan right. of uh, having to eat matzah for a week, though. But it's more yeah. endurance. <laughs> we, we've talked a bunch about your experience, and I think we've been pretty clear that. Both of us have our own experiences with Judaism, and in some senses they're typical, and in some senses there is no typical case. Uh, but h- how would you see your experience that we've talked about as being typical compared to other people in your community, your specific sect, uh, Judaism in general? And uh, let's start there. Okay, so um, I'm I'm a little bit atypical uh, because I fall in between two of the major groupings. So I refer to myself as conservative or masorti, uh, which is how I identify. But in terms of my practice, I kind of fall in between the conservative movement and the modern orthodox movement. I'm much stricter than many other people in the conservative movement. And so in terms of my practice, uh, you might call me orthopraxy. I'm orthopraxy. I'm very orthopraxy. Uh, <laughs> orthodox. So I have I have some important philosophical uh, issues with uh, with modern orthodoxy, specifically on the role of women, and in terms of acknowledging the history of Judaism and being more more willing to talk about maybe you know like some of the downsides and you know where where did some of our stuff come from um, because. All of our practice, you know, it didn't form full from, you know, just the minds of Jews. You know, Jews live in other communities and they're affected by people around them, you know. And so Jewish practice in in Europe can't really be separated from the interactions with the Christian communities around. And similarly, Jewish practice in the Muslim world uh, can't be separated from from that. I I do want to say that, that I don't like the term sect. It, it, it feels very negative to me. It feels more like a, it's kind of like saying it's a cult. 
And yeah. I know that's not what you're intended, but uh, uh, so. it's a short it's a shorthand that is generally used, and I feel like everyone who calls attention to it, everyone just agrees that it's a bad term. But we don't like what else are we going to call it? Like we're all Jews here, but there is some sort of separation. Yeah. So usually, what uh, I prefer the term movement. So you know, the conservative mm, yeah, movement, yeah. the orthodox movement, the reform movement, uh, or community. Um, you know, something something that has a more positive aspect to it. But it's just got so many more syllables. <laughs> it does. <laughs> I'm joking. Movement is movement is totally uh, that makes a lot of sense. So, and and I want to say that you know, like uh, in in terms of my connection to Judaism, uh, it's it's perhaps much more intellectual than than other people's is. Of course, there is an emotional element to it, but I, I find a lot of meaning in studying the history and not necessarily from, I guess, just uh, from, from devotion. Um, and of course, that's going to vary between different people and for different reasons over different times. So, you know, we're just getting a snapshot of how I feel right now. It could be very different in 10 years, and I know it was different 10 years ago for me. You referenced this a little bit. I think one of the things to bring up uh, as we talk about the different movements in Judaism is the issue of gender. And, uh, you know, we should call attention to these experiences of Judaism differ by the different movements and by gender. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because you said that it was sort of an important point to you. Yeah, I can talk about it. And maybe you can, I, I don't know what the roles are in how they're viewed in the reform community. So maybe you want to bring, say that afterwards. So the conservative movement is, uh, it's egalitarian. Uh, women can be rabbis, they can be cantors, they can be prayer leaders, all, all of that sort of stuff. And so, so this is a, a major point where, where I diverge from modern orthodoxy. So in the orthodox community, uh, women cannot be rabbis. Now things are changing a little bit at the fringes. There's been a, a recent movement towards um, more women being, you know, essentially having the training of rabbis, but not officially being rabbis. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm interested in seeing where this goes um, because it, you know, it might be something of, of interest to me uh, in the future. So, so my personal opinion of how women live in the Orthodox community is that I, I consider it to be somewhat uh, prescribed. Now, of course, I, I really want to emphasize that this is yeah. my opinion as an outsider looking in. And right, right. there are many, many Orthodox women who find their roles to be empowering. Uh, and they, you know, they they like the roles that they have been assigned and they find them to be, they, they find that they can be community leaders and do all the things that they want to do. And they find meaning in that. So we had, I had talked about the rabbi being uh, in the conservative movement, the rabbi can be uh, a man or a woman. Uh, in the uh, Orthodox, uh, only men can be rabbis, but there's also this institution of the, the Rebetzin. And the Rebetzin is is the wife of the rabbi. And that might be where she gets her title, but that's not, it's, it's not just that she's the wife of the rabbi, she also has an important role and uh, role to play in the community. So just like you know, I might go to the rabbi, you know, to ask questions. Uh, women who, you know, have personal questions that they don't feel comfortable talking to a man about can go to the rabbitson. The rabbitson is often, you know, is, is very knowledgeable, especially often about, about laws relating to women's lives that men might just not know as much about because they don't study it as much. Right. And so oftentimes the, the rabbi and the rabbitson function as a team. 
and and this this is important like on a lot of college campuses uh, orthodox couples will be will will go out uh, and both the and and both the man and the woman are both involved in you know creating uh, a space for the students and for engaging with the students it's not he's doing it and then she's also you know just being right. a stay-at-home mom or anything like that. right I, I think the the reform movement is um very similar in in the egalitarian sense we've actually so this isn't necessarily universally standard across the reform movement but we've actually um, added an orange to the seder plate because one of the first ordained uh reform rabbis was speaking at the story is she was speaking at a at an engagement and uh someone stood up and said a woman belongs on the beam of the way an orange belongs on a seder plate so now we put oranges on seder plates <laughs> and a fine bima the bima in a in a synagogue is uh, the all this stuff. Huge portions of this are defined in the Torah, um, but I I don't remember which parts. <laughs> uh, but the bima is generally the raised area in the front of a synagogue where the Torah is kept. So it's a very sacred space, and uh, you know obviously the rabbis have a, a very important ceremonial function, sort of leading the services up there. That cr- cuts across the uh the movements correct me if i'm wrong. yeah no it, it <laughs> is um i want to uh, a couple of things one uh so my family also does the orange on oh, the cool. plate um there are, there are a lot of a lot of uh, conservative jews that do that as well oh. um we also use uh the the coast miriam i don't know if you guys do that glass of water i've been in a couple seders where this was done uh remind me what 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 it uh signifies so, in this case all right okay so uh this is uh in I guess it's in response to uh, the Elijah's cup. So this right. is a cup of uh, Miriam, Miriam, uh, sister of Moses. And according to, to Jewish lore, she had a, a well, based on her merit, a well of fresh water could was always available for the Jews in the desert. Uh, and after she died, there was there was no more fresh water and led to all sorts of conflict and everyone wanted to go back to Egypt. And God said, why do I even bother with these people? <laughs> Usual story. <laughs> yes, <laughs> and and so uh, people will put a uh, a glass uh, filled with water to to signify uh, the importance of Miriam. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, um, the other thing on the the bima. Um, so often in American synagogues, the bima is usually at the front of the at the front of the synagogue. Outside of America, and especially uh, even inside America, in uh, often in, in Sephardi shuls. I should say shul is shul and synagogue are the same yeah. thing. Just in case anybody was confused, there the the bima will be in the middle of the will be in right. the middle of the congregation. Um, so instead of everybody facing one direction towards it, instead everybody is uh, arrayed around the bima and looking towards the inside. That's interesting. It, that's that's interesting on such a variety of levels. Um, I know that that's a very typical arrangement for Eastern Orthodox. Um, Christians, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm wondering how much uh, cross-pollination there was there, or just they both started doing it that way, and it's the Northerners <laughs> all facing in one direction who are weird. No, Where do they... so it's actually, it's a it's a New World thing. Um, if you've <laughs> ever been to see any of the old synagogues in uh, in Eastern Europe, they'll also be in the middle. Um, so I, <laughs> I don't know why it's to one side. Um, it might be as simple as we need to modernize and, you know, it looks like a church. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, there, there might be other reasons. So the um, the oldest congregation in the Western Hemisphere is in Aruba, I think. 
Uh, it was a, um, a Sephardi con- congregation. Theirs is facing in one direction. So I'm wondering if it's Latin Christian versus uh, Orthodox Christian environmental situation thing. Yeah, or... yeah. I have no idea. That's Well, it would be a great idea for somebody to study that for a PhD. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> for, the, for the center located ones, where do they store the Torah? So the Torah is still going to be on the east wall. Um, oh, so there, okay. there are essentially two spaces. There's, there's the, there's the ark that has that holds the, the Torah on the east wall, and then right. you also have just the raised platform in the center where the person leading the service is. And so what that also uh, it allows is part of the service. You, in order to read the Torah, you have to take it out of the ark. Right. And so there's a procession, and in services where where the uh, bima is to the is and the ark are in the same place they usually do like a procession around the synagogue right well right. it would make a little more sense to have the procession going from here to there <laughs> <laughs> yeah now that you say that that makes a lot more sense <laughs> so as we're starting to wrap up we've talked about a bunch of aspects of Judaism what are the key elements of this whole religious life for you uh, what what makes them significant for you so the really important thing to me um, is the, the sense of community, the sense of belonging, that this is something that, that by being a practicing Jew, I'm being part of a tradition that stretches back thousands of years. You know, I, I can legitimately look at the Bible and say, these were my ancestors doing these things. Uh, and that, that, makes those, that makes them have much more meaning for me. And then, you know, and so in practicing and and especially keeping kosher, I can say, you know, I'm keeping kosher in the same way that my ancestors have kept kosher. And I can see myself, you know, as part of a chain going from the past and into the future. Is there anything else that you think we should say before we wrap up that might not be obvious to an outsider that you think I haven't covered so far in my other questions, but they should know about Judaism? So, well, there's, there's a lot of stuff. Um, perhaps the, the most, there's a couple of really important things. Uh, one is that Judaism has its own history. It's often easy when people are, you know, you're studying history. It's often easy to, you know, look at the, the top line stuff. What are the kings and emperors doing? And not so much focus on the lives of uh, daily people. And then, you know, while in recent decades, there's been a lot more push in history to study, you know, what the lives of regular people are, those regular people are usually people from the majority. Um, and Jews are, have for, for a very long time, have been a despised minority, uh, hidden away, uh, subject to all sorts of horrible things. Um, but Jews have our own history. And, and sometimes it's talked about, you know, Jewish history is kind of leading into Christianity and Islam. And Jewish history didn't stop then, you know, we've had philosophers and great writers and poets. We have a full culture that's existed concurrent with, you know, the the greatest flowerings of uh, European, Islamic, Chinese culture, etc. Another thing is that uh, Judaism is is an ethnic religion, and this is you know, might be somewhat confusing. Um, you know, it's not so familiar to uh, especially Americans uh, who tend to think of religion and ethnicity being two separate parts of identity. So, you know, for example, you know, you could consider yourself to be of German descent and be Lutheran or be secular or, you know, be Catholic. 
And just because you're German doesn't mean you're one or you know, you're any of those other things. For Judaism, this is it's a it's an it's an ethnic religion. So to be Jewish in one sense is also to be Jewish in the other sense. And you really can't separate it out, right? But also on the other way, Judaism is an ethnic religion that's based on an older understanding of ethnicity. For example, if, you know, modern days, if you are, you're French, you're French forever. You know, you have French blood. You can't be not French. That's just who you are. In Judaism, if you decide, uh, anybody can become Jewish by converting. Uh, and you do this, uh, you take upon yourself the responsibility, you become part of the community, you take upon yourself the responsibility to follow the law and live your life in a Jewish manner. And once you do that, you're Jewish. There's no, there's, there's no distinction between you, you know, just because your ancestors, just because your parents weren't Jewish, doesn't mean that you're not Jewish. You're just as Jewish as, as the next person, uh, as the next person at services. Yeah, that's actually a pretty important point to me because my grandmother converted, my mother converted, my wife converted. <laughs> and, you know, my daughter is going to be, uh, what, third, fourth generation mm-hmm. Jew from a family of mixed marriages. And they're all legitimately Jewish, as Jewish as anyone else. And I dare anyone to come over here and tell me otherwise, basically. <laughs> you know, we don't have that many Jews. And if anybody's stupid enough to want to be one, they probably are. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, and then I guess finally, I, I want to say that, you know, I, we've been mentioning that, you know, uh, my experience isn't necessarily typical. And I'm, I'm an Ashkenazi Jew, which means that my family comes from Eastern Europe. But there are many, many other kinds of Jews. Ashkenazi Jews are the majority uh, in the world uh, at the moment. You know, of course, things can and will change. But there are many, many other kinds of Jews that each also have their own history. So there, there's some some tension in, in Judaism as to, you know, colonization by Ashkenazi Jews of other areas. And yeah. But, you know, we mentioned in passing uh, Sephardi Jews and Yemeni Jews. There are also, so Sephardi Jews are Jews from Spain who were kicked out during the Spanish Inquisition. Yemeni Jews from Yemen. There are Jews, uh, the Ethiopian Jews, Betach Israel, uh, who have been there for they were in, they were... So yeah, long that I would not even want to hazard a number. Oh, <laughs> like, well, um, they consider themselves to be descendants of uh, King David and the Queen of yeah. Shunem. Uh, yeah. And uh, they've actually been, they were separated from the rest of the Jewish world for so long that it was actually before the Talmud was uh, written down. Yeah. There's also uh, Bene Israel, which are uh, a group in in India, who have also been there for, you know, like 2,000 years. There are Persian Jews. There are still Jews in Iran. This is often something that people don't think about, but there are Jews in Iran. Uh, they actually have a, uh, a representative in the Iranian par- parliament yeah. by law. Bukhari Jews, which are in Central Asia. There are even Jews in China, the, the Kaifeng Jews. Community yeah. is really no more, but people will occasionally find out that according to Jewish law, they're, they're you know, they're Jewish and they'll migrate, uh, immigrate to Israel and rejoin the Jewish community. Uh, it's an international, <laughs> it's an international religion. And even though we're sort of used to seeing white European faces when we see Jews in the media, it's, there's, there's plenty of Jews of color and such things floating around in the world. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Uh, This has been absolutely great. 
been illuminating for me, and I'm sure it'll be even more illuminating for my listeners who have slightly less <laughs> of a background than me in some of this stuff. So uh, thank you so much for your time, Ira. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. It's good that, you know, I was able to annoy you enough to get on the show. <laughs> <laughs>
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.